All right, we're back for the second cycle here in Hosea chapter 2. We're going to pick it up, chapter 2, verse 2, all the way down through 3, 5. 2, 2 through 3, 5. We're going to see this second cycle. In the first cycle, we saw God called uh, Hosea to take Gomer as a wife. She's unfaithful, has, un- has children of whoredom, and we see God giving a word of um, of Comfort there at the end and restoration. And now here, we're going to see Israel's reconciliation unveiled. So we saw the adultery illustrated, and now we're going to see this reconciliation unveiled. And the way it's going to go again is there's going to be judgment followed by, by restoration. In chapter 2, verse 2, uh, down through t- uh, 13, we're going to see judgment, that shame falls on the unfaithful bride. Shame falls on the unfaithful bride. Now again, remember that this has taken place over a number of years. Uh, the bliss of hopeful days um, yeah, have quickly come uh, to an end. They've been quenched by the, the, the harsh realities of, of the, yeah, this, this present reality of unfaithfulness. If you will, the dark storm clouds have, have gathered of sin and betrayal. And the, the prospect of in, infidelity... Um, now has become no longer hypothetical or theoretical, but it's, it's real, he's living it, he feels it. And now, um, we're going to see Hosea speaking, and it appears that Hosea is going to be speaking in verses 2 through 5, um, and then after that, in verses 6 through 13, it's going to transition to the Lord speaking. So it's like Hosea is speaking, and it's almost like the Lord is saying the same thing for Israel, but then... The Lord is going to be speaking, I think, here in verse 6. There's a little bit of discussion on this, but I think you'll see as we, we get into it. So Hosea is first going to speak to his children here in verses 2 through 3. In what's going to be a hard word. So it begins with, verse 2, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she may put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. So Hosea here is speaking to his children. We don't know how old they are here. And he's calling with them to plead with their mother and uses language that is here formal, language of formal separation and divorce language. Uh, the, the, the threats imply him leaving her here to her sin. So he's, he's not actually saying he's going to kill her, but he's going to, to cast her away from the protection that she would receive uh, being in his home and under his care as her, as her husband. Um, this is similar to the way that God spoke to, to Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 37, he says, Behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. God's speaking there about Israel going into exile. Well, in the same sort of way, Hosea is talking about casting off his wife and leaving her to, to her sinful choices and the, de- the certain death that's out there for her. Telling, pleading with the children about this. And then Hosea, so he speaks to his children, and now he speaks against his children here in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. 
For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my, my drink. So the, the children of Gomer will also feel the consequences here of their mother's sin. And again, this, this feels harsh, but, but this, this grief and the association with the mother's sin here is, is devastating everybody who is involved. And it's also a picture. Now, some would say this is God speaking here about the children of Israel, and that, that may be the case. It seems like Hosea is still speaking here. It's a little bit unclear, but, but it's certainly clear that God will be giving Israel over uh, to sin because they've been consecrated to Baal. He's going to let them, let, them, let them go. Now, Gomer would have been here a temple prostitute. That's how most people um, take this. She, she would have been looking to her, her temple pimps and the illicit lovers to provide for her in a way that would reflect the same way that Israel was looking to bail their pimp. That they were going out to this false god to provide what God should for them. We're supposed to feel the, the heartache and just the, the devastation of this sinful choice and what it's brought about on the whole family. Well, here in verse 6, we're going to see God gives Israel over to Baal. So I think this is a zooming in specifically on God's dealing with, with Israel and them going after, after Baal. Let's look here at chapter 2, uh, verse, verse, verse 6. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, oh, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. There's a little glimmer of hope there for the prodigal daughter. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore... I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now, now I will cover her lewdness in the sight of her, uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth and her feasts and her new moons and her Sabbaths and her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the days of the bales when she burnt offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. I don't know if you saw it there, but in verse 6, what God says, He's going he's to make her path of perversion one marked with, with pain. He is not going to allow her to endure um, comfortably in her unfaithfulness. Which, which, by the way, you know, and I'm getting that from there in verse 6, where He talks about He's going to hedge her way up with, with thorns. Proverbs say, the way of the transgressor is hard. This is one of the merciful ways that God has rigged life is that sin has hurtful effects. 
And particularly for the people of God who have the Spirit of God, the way that they're grieved when they sin, it is a mercy of God to make you miserable in your sin. It's mercy of of Him. So don't push that away. When you feel miserable in giving over to sin, you should, when you give yourself over to sin, you should thank God for it. Because He's alerting you to the realities of life. Verse 7, he's, he's saying that she's going to eventually be sobered in the emptiness of her sin, but she's currently ignorant there in verse 8 of where the provision comes from. God has been faithful to her, even in the midst of her unfaithfulness. But, but how is she using her all that God has given? What is she doing with it there? Giving it to the gods, giving it to the Baals, right? I mean, and, and think about that again. It is a great offense to God to use what He gives you for your joy and His pleasure, to take that and then to use it in sinful ways. It's a great offense to God. Well, in verses 9-12 through 12 there, we see that God, he, he claims right over everything. That He can remove every good thing from her life to help her see where her provision really comes from. And notice there again, verse 13 um, I mean, it's a, such a sad picture. I will punish her for the feast of her bales when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her rings and her jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. She gets dressed up to go find her lover and just walks right out the door in the front of the faithful God who's been nothing but good to her. You're supposed to feel that and see that. So this is the word of, of judgment here. That she's, she is, her ways are reckless and destroying everything around her and that she is deeply deceived and misunderstanding where all the good is actually coming from and it's destroying everything. But now in verse 14, God again is going to give a word of Restoration. We're going to see in 2.14 through 3.5, restoration. Salvation is promised by the, f- the forgiving husband. The harsh language here has been used to emphasize the severity of her sin. But now the door is left open for reconciliation. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Achor a valley of hope. Achor means trouble. There shall be, uh, there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. What we have here is this, we have a moving message of Mercy. That the betrayed husband of Israel has followed his unfaithful bride to do what? What's the word that's used there? To allure her. To speak tenderly to her. God's steadfast love seeks out his wayward bride. He calls to her into the wilderness. Away from the temptations of all of the lovers. So that she can focus on him. Now, do you notice, who's initiating the reconciliation here? It's God. It's always God. God is always the reconciler. He's the initiator of reconciliation. 
God chases after His wayward people, not the other way around. He initiates with her. She is miserable, but she's not seeking God. Did you catch that? I mean, her life, it's, it's devastating. Everybody around her and herself, she's deceived. And she's not seeking God, but God, for some reason, seeks her. It's interesting that while sin can seduce us toward evil, God can seduce sinners with His love and lure our hearts back to Himself. We see His beauty, that it's better than whatever sin offers. It's almost unbelievable that God would speak this way. I mean, the God of the universe is condescending here in really unfathomable ways. He's chasing this beaten up hooker out into the wilderness so that he can love her. He stoops low to snatch up his used up bride. And again, do you notice where this is happening? It's in the wilderness. He's calling her out into the wilderness. Now, why do you think that's what's happening out there? What happens in the wilderness? Hmm? There, is, there is testing there. Loneliness. Lost. It's hard. It's hard. It's lonely. It's scary. There's testing. There's temptation there. It's a, it's a hard place. I think, though, if, if we went around this room... I think most of us in here could probably share ways that in the wilderness, that actually God had to get us into the wilderness in order to get our attention. He had to give us over to our ways to let us run after our own sin, to really get a good taste of it, to see how much we need Him. That's not everybody's story in the same way, but but many of us could testify of how our wandering from God wounded us, yet (laughs) He did not leave us in our sin. But he sought us and brought us to himself. Sometimes he, he allows wounds of rebellion to soften us so that we can better hear his voice. God is going to turn the wilderness here into a what? What's it say? Into a vineyard. A place of blessing and celebration. It's going to go from a place of cursing to a place of blessing and celebration. The Valley of Achor. Uh, this is the, the same place where... Uh, Somebody was executed in Joshua. Anybody remember who it was? It has a similar name. Uh, well, it's his fault. AI happened because of this guy. Achan. Remember Achan, the troubler of Israel, who hid things under the ban, and then God let them lose to AI in a battle? Yeah, well, this is the same place, this Valley of Achor. It's been a reminder of shame and sorrow, but God does what what only God can do. He's going to make it a place of hope and restoration and reconciliation. That's what God does. He takes a barren land and makes it beautiful with His mercy and His grace. And Israel is going to respond to God's reconciliation um, in ways that they did similarly uh, to, to what happened in the Exodus, where there is joy and there is love. This is why he mentions them coming out of Egypt. You're going to respond to me in the same way you did when you came out. Now, that didn't last long, but initially there was a lot of celebrating and joy, right? Now, what we see in chapter 2, verse 16, down through 23, is God's going to lay before us um, seven kingdom promises 
that are going to characterize what this restoration of God's people unto himself uh, is going to be like. Okay? Uh, these are things that are known in part now under the new covenant by the church, and they will be known in full in the final stage of God's, God's kingdom. Okay? So there's an already not yet experience to what we're about to see here that God is going to promise for, for Hosea. Um, seven kingdom promises. So the first one here is we're going to see there's going to be devotion to God. Devotion to God in verses uh, 16 and 17. In that day, declares the Lord, you shall call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the Baal, the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Israel had looked to Baal as their God, as their security, their provider, their protector. Well, there's a day coming when the people of God will be confused no more about who their God is. They won't call some other God, God, but rather they'll know him, as the new covenant promise in Jeremiah says. They will know him, know the Lord. So there's going to be devotion to God. Secondly, there's going to be peace on earth. There's going to be peace on earth, chapter 2, verse 18. I will make uh, for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. Critters, yeah. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. This is the hope of, of the kingdom, that one day when God makes all things new, the curse that corrupts the earth will be lifted. Where's a place in the New Testament that talks about this? It says that the creation even now is longing for this day. Yeah, that's right. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22 says that the creation, even right now, longs to be set free from its bondage. Longing for that day. Well, God is saying this is, this is going to be happening. And the prophets testify about this all the way through the Old Testament, that the wolf will lay down with, um, with the lamb. Now, Isaiah, uh, that's in Isaiah 11.6, that um, the, the people will beat their, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and they will study war no more, Micah 4 says. There will be peace on earth where the whole of creation will be reconciled to, to God. There's going to be a reversal of the warfare that was promised back in chapter 1, verse 5. There will be peace on earth. So there's devotion to God. There's going to be peace on earth. Now, as I go through these, I want you to understand that God is, God is giving us, again, a window into the far, what's, what's, what's far from, from Hosea's day. This is going to be on past the exile, on past the days of Nehemiah, on past the 400 years of silence before Messiah comes. And then when Messiah comes, he's going to graft people into these promises that, again, we'll experience in part, but that when he returns, we'll experience in full. Third one here, faithfulness from God. They'll know faithfulness from God. Chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. This word betrothal, anybody know what betrothal is? Almost. So it's in between, like in our culture, it's somewhere in between engagement and marriage. 
So it's like, yeah, it's an engagement on steroids. Like it really, really, really means something. Um, it's, it's legally binding to where they would have been called husband and wife, uh, but they weren't allowed to, like they, they didn't, you know, didn't have sexual intercourse and all that kind of stuff, but they were, they were legally husband and wife. So it was, it was more binding than what we would think of uh, in regards to engagement. But God is, it's as if God is, is taking Israel back to the days of their courtship. Oh, remember when we fell in love? Well, it's going to happen. It's going to happen again. It's going to bring her home to be his. There's a freshness to their love, a newness to it, which is, again, almost unthinkable after we consider the unfaithfulness of God's people. God says, I want you back. You're mine. Fourthly, there'll be prosperity on, on earth. There'll be prosperity here on earth chapter 2 verse 21 and in that day i will answer declares the lord i will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall again answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer jezreel that's a strange passage but what he's talking about here is that the lord is going to bring a day when there's going to be great prosperity on, on the earth where there will be vineyards and fields will flourish with with life and God, what's, now what's significant do you think about God doing that? That in, that in this, this final stage of the kingdom, that there will be abundant prosperity agriculturally. Why do you think that is so? Yep, so there's going to be blessing the land. Yep. But I'm talking about new heavens, new earth. Why? Why? What is God proving? Think again about who Israel's been worshiping. They've been worshiping the fertility God who supposedly is supposed to bring all this agricultural blessing. God says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to show you who really is the blessing giver. It's me. He's going to fill the earth with evidence that he's the one who actually gives life. It's not going to be the Baals. Number five, when I say seven, I meant five. So if you number down to seven, just scratch out the last two. It's five. It was originally seven, and then I condensed them. So that's a typo there in my own notes, which I'm going to... Correct now, because I'll never remember. All right, good. So, last one, number five. They're going to be lavished with glory. Lavished with glory. Chapter 2, verse 23. And I will sow uh, her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. The Lord is going to plant Israel in the land where he will nourish her and make her to grow. The nation that was once called Lo Ruama, not, my, not love, no mercy, and Lo Ami, not my people, will experience mercy and the commitment of the loving, living God who says, these are my people and they will know the Lord forevermore. He fixes the whole thing. This is what God does for his people. Now, again, these are all marks of kingdom life that are experienced now in part in the church and will be known fully when Christ returns and ushers in the next stage of the kingdom. And if you are, yeah, if you're a premillennial view of of eschatology, this would be during the thousand year reign of Christ. Or if you have more of an amillennial view, this would be when Christ returns and sets up the new heavens and the new earth. Either way, you see parallel language there. Happy to discuss that at another time. But, but we have an already, not yet, in Christ. But for Israel, this was all very future. That there was a day coming when God was going to take them back and make everything right. 
which was so important for them because they're about to be drug off into exile. And they're going to be slaves at the hands of Assyrians and then later on the Babylonians. And it's going to look like they have no hope. But they've got this hanging in the back of their mind that God has said He would bring us home. He will do that to His people. Now, with that promise hanging in the balance, now God calls Hosea to go back to Gomer. He's going to take her as His bride, just as God had promised that He will do for Israel. Chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Hosea speaking, Go again. Love a woman who, has, who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. God commands Hosea here to take back his unfaithful wife despite her sin. Again, this serves as, as the mirror image of how God will treat Israel, though she loves her idols. Now, you may be wondering about that comment there about the, the raisin cakes. These were aphrodisiacs that were used in, uh, oftentimes used in the Baal worship. So if you were going to go and lay with a temple prostitute on your way in, you'd get you some raisin cakes and chow down and you'd be ready to roll when you go in. This is, I mean, it's, it's, it's just the whole thing's twisted. Nevertheless, the love that God has for His people was greater than that, despite all of their wickedness. And God says, Hosea, take her back. Take her back. Chapter 3, verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lake of barley. Now, 15 shekels of silver. Does anybody know why that's significant? How much is it? What's the price of a slave? Anybody know? The traditional price of a slave was 30 shekels of silver. How much did Hosea buy Gomer for? 15. Half of that. Now, some have suggested that she become a temple prostitute, which I think is true, and so she would have been enslaved there. So, full price for her would have been 30 to redeem her. But he only has to pay 15. And, and barley, does anybody know what barley was used for? You don't eat barley. Animals eat barley. There's only actually one offering that Israel has that's a barley offering. Anybody know what it is? It's in Numbers chapter 5. And do you know what it's for? You offer it up when there's a suspicion of adultery. So he pays here. I mean, Gomer is at such a lowly spot that redeeming her is like going to a garage sale and buying a half-priced hooker and some, some cow feed. Like, that's, that's all it is here. This is, what she's, this is how she's valued. But not to God. God sees her as precious. God sees her as his own. God loves her in spite of all the reasons that would be stacked up against her why she shouldn't be lovable. God loves her despite her estate, her grievous sin. And Hosea will love her in a way that reflects God's love of his own unfaithful bride. There's a couple at a church that I used to attend in in Texas where 
where the wife, uh, husband and wife had been married for a little while, and the wife ended up leaving her husband uh, for her crack dealer. That she had gotten snared in, in drugs and ended up leaving her husband for, for her crack dealer. And before she walked out the door to go with him, she turned to her husband and told him, hey, and by the way, your son isn't yours. And just left. Broke his heart. Well, she wound up down in Houston and ended up getting arrested because she had written some, some bad checks in order to, to fund her, her drug habit. And uh, she, she gets locked up. You know what her husband did? During her visitation times, he would drive from Dallas down to Houston, and he would call for her, and he would meet with her and sit across the glass from her, and he began to woo her back. He began to court her again, and he won her heart back. And when when it was time for her to get out, He met her there, and he brought her home, and they got married again. That is the kind of picture of what exactly is happening here in the book of Hosea. You see a story like that, and you think, wow, that's amazing. How much more of a God who doesn't need us, who would choose to do that for us in spite of all of our sins, that he would seek us in the wilderness and allure us, that we might know him and his love, which is certainly undeserved, but should forever be cherished. And that, by the way, that, that understanding of grace is what fuels the Christian life. So if you think the Christian life is just a bunch of rules of get it together or God's going to be mad at you, that's not what you should hear here in the book of Hosea. This is intended to be a people who are supposed to be overwhelmed with a God who loves them so much that that they would be compelled out of thankfulness and gratitude to love Him and serve Him and never even think about going after false gods. This is what makes sin look so absurd to the believer, is that God has been so good to us. Chapter 3, verse 3, I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So after bringing Gomer home, Hosea tells her that she must be faithful and that she must remain at home rather than pass herself around in the beds of unloving lovers. She must remain faithful and he promises to be faithful to her as well. Verse 4, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or the household gods. So, so Gomer's being reclaimed by Hosea reflects Israel's exile and the way that God is going to reclaim her after the exile. Hosea would learn to be faithful under Gomer's watch. Or the other way around. Yeah. Um, Gomer would learn to be faithful under, under Hosea's watch. And as Israel would learn to be faithful again under God's watch. During this time, they'll be cut off. Uh, from having a king, a temple, a priest, sacrifice, all these things. They're not going to have any of that during exile. But they'll have God. And God will be with them. And He will watch over them. And He will bring them out. What's interesting about all of those practices is that all of them had become corrupt anyway. They had, 
they had syncretized Baal worship and the worship of Yahweh to where they, they basically made them one religion. In the same way that like in many places around the world, you have syncretism between like Catholic theology and voodoo, and you have a lot of different amalgamation. Well, in the same way, they had done this with, with Baal worship. They just made up a whole nother, a whole nother religion. Well, verse 5, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in their latter days. Israel's exile would not last forever, but rather God would bring them to repentance, and they will return to the Lord and seek Him instead of all the false gods. And did you catch there who's mentioned again? Last time he was inferred to, the inference was there, and here he's directly referred to. Who is it? David, yeah. David, their king. And again, David's dead, so who is this referring to? Uh, A David who came back from the dead. The Lord Jesus, right? Messiah, the one who sits on the Davidic throne, referencing back to chapter 1, verse 11, being under one head, right? So after, and this is how it works historically, after the exile... Israel, true Israel, will repent, and they will seek the Lord by coming near in hope of Messiah who comes, who is the Lord Jesus. So true Israel is going to believe in the Lord Jesus, be brought into the new covenant, and then God in His uh, mysterious wisdom and love is going to bring Gentiles in, and we're all going to be sharing in this love under the care of of Messiah who sits on, on David's throne. This is, yeah... The sweet story of of Hosea and Gomer and their reconciliation. What questions might we have on this second cycle here of of judgment and restoration? Any any questions? Yep. Well, there's, there's discussion exactly about how that, how that happens. I mean, so the regathering of Israel in the days of when, when, when Greece is um, you know, ruling the world and then in the days of Rome, you know, all the remnant who's left and alive, everybody's back in Israel. So um, there's not formal restoration in that same sense. And, and them being back didn't last super long. In 70 AD, you've got Rome coming and, and again, obliterating as a judgment from God for rejecting Messiah, and they've been scattered ever since. Well, so. Samaria, the kind, of, kind of the restoration, with the sort of kind of restoration. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so it's, it's just not as, as clear-cut in some ways. There's some fuzziness in there in exactly the way that it works out. So, yeah, good question, though. Is that a question or is that a statement? So I guess the, the question then would be, is it appropriate for us to be able to look at this and like try to encourage one another? <clears throat> oh, yes. You know, whether this is your promise. God gave it to Israel. Yeah. True Israel believes it. Mm-hmm. 
Unbelieving Israel doesn't believe it. This is where, you know, scriptures say not all Israel is Israel. True Israel believes it. Some of that Israel is ethnic Israel, like Jews. Gentiles are grafted into the promises of Israel, which should keep us humble at the table. That's what Romans 9 through 11 tells us. Be humble there because these weren't even your promises. You just got invited. Like y'all were out in the woods eating bark and, you know, barking at the moon. Like this is, that's what you were, that's what your ancestors were doing. Yeah, I'm from West Virginia, so that's really happening. But, um, but like he's like, y'all were just a bunch of pagan worshipers. Um, but you've been grafted in uh, to the promises that God made to, to Israel. So, so yes, when you read this, you can say, yes, God made these promises to Israel. Um, but these are the churches as well because we are grafted into the promises of Israel. We share in this hope. The Messiah is our Messiah as well. But we can't say this to, like, if we're talking to your neighbor who, like, clearly isn't following Christ, we can't be like, this promise applies to you. Yeah, not yet, but it can be yours if you will repent and believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, this, this promise can be for anybody. That these, this hope, this, this, this five-fold kingdom glory that we just talked about, this is the hope of humanity. This is what God is fixing. It was lost in Adam through his fall, and now God has worked out this plan of redemption. Um, and, yeah, now, because Christ has come, he has been the true Adam, the true Israel, the true Moses, the one who's fulfilled the law. He's done it, and now there's a new covenant that, yeah, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can be grafted into to enjoy these promises that God gave to Israel and now are, are ours in Christ Jesus. So, yeah. Does that help a little bit? Yeah, great. So tell somebody about that and tell them to believe in Jesus. Amen. Yeah. Depends on how we define that and what trying to, kind of cult they're trying to make out of it. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of, there have been several cults that have been started out of that lost tribes of Israel kind of stuff. So I would, I would say it, I need more specific, like, what's it tied to? Yeah, but I don't, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, yeah. So good, good question. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly. It depends on what you mean by that. So, I mean, Israel right now, there's Jews scattered throughout the whole world. So in regards to ethnic Israel... There certainly is, and there's a state of Israel where there's many Jews who live in the Middle East in Israel, but they're, yeah, Jews are scattered throughout all the world, and they come from different, different tribes. Yeah, so. Yeah, they would have they been, been the people of God, they would have been Israelites, and they would have yeah, held to their particular tribe. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. To be 100 percent honest, I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. That's a good question. Yep. Nick, last. Um, for the prosperity on earth, uh, kingdom promise, mm-hmm. verses 21 through 22. Um, what does it mean by "I will answer"? I will answer. They shall answer. Um, like the the verb "answer." Like, does that mean like? Yeah. Yeah, it's weird, but it's in the same way that in Romans 8, you see creation's groaning even now. So, I don't know. Whatever. The Lord's like, I hear you're groaning, you know, badger. And I hear you're groaning, you know, cardinal. And I, I, don't, I don't even know. I mean, it seems like creation in some sense is groaning now, and the Lord hears, and he is going to fix it to where in that, yeah, in the new heaven and the new earth, all things are going to be made new in a way that, that creation is going to thrive and be alive. 
And that Jezreel, it's interesting that it's mentioned there. Remember, that means to scatter. But here it's used as the result of the scattering of seed. There's a harvest that springs up to new life. So as we see the, the Jezreel uh, word flipped on its head. So, Last question for a moment. So generally or specifically, are you asking specifically about cases of, of adultery within marriage and how should this text inform the way the Christians think? Well, I guess a little bit of both. I just, you know, uh, okay. Let's start with, the, let's start with the, the specific. So specifically, yeah, Jesus gives per, permission for there to be uh, divorce in the cases of adultery. Um, but that... That permission does not mean, it's, it's certainly not a command. So adultery does not require divorce. Um, and, and I think in every single, I think every case is going to be unique. And I think that, yeah, any of you who have experienced that um, and are walking through that, I don't think you should do that alone. I think, yeah, having some, some small trusted circle around you with people to help, help think about what restoration looks like, what reconciliation looks like. Um, I think the hope would be uh, that there would be real repentance of the offending party and that uh, there would be real forgiveness and that there would be able to be reconciliation and restoration. Um, In a fallen world, though, uh, the effects of sin sometimes are so devastating that there can be forgiveness but not reconciliation in regards to, to the marriage covenant and, and restoration, um, and that's where again I think it would it's going to be take a bit of a case by case situation to to walk that out, um, but but our hope would always be, and you know sadly in in our in our church's history since I've been here we've seen a number of of cases of of, of adultery, um, but in God's mercy we've seen all of them lead to confession repentance reconciliation and restoration in a way that has magnified the grace of God and his faithfulness. Um, but there's still shrapnel that goes and it's hard. So, um, so, so pray for marriages and for those of you who desire to be married, be, be, be trust the Lord and, yeah, and pray that he would yeah, he'd, he'd be gracious to you in your waiting. For Christian love in general, we're to be imitators of God Ephesians tells us. So I think we're to have a radical kind of love for God that's moved and overwhelmed by His love for us. And then we're to have a radical love toward one another. One that shows this sort of reconciling. That even if, you know, if our relationship, you know, so, so obviously, you know, Drew and I, um, there, would, there wouldn't be an adultery, but there, would be, there could be real hard relational break if we sinned against each other. And we should be able to read this text and be able to see that, goodness, we're, we're both but beggars. And God's grace is amazing. And His love ought compel us to find a way for there to be able to be reconciliation in our brotherhood. So, yeah, I think the more that you see God and His love and how unfathomable it is, the more pride and holding on to your rights looks so stupid and childish. 
It's just dumb. I mean, there's no, there's no room for that in the Christian life. Um, doesn't mean there isn't real wounds and real pain. But the bigger God is in His glorious love, the more it ought to overwhelm us and the more we ought see the offenses that we have toward one another, though they may be hard, as very small compared to the great love that God has shown us in our great offenses against Him. Does that make sense? Yeah. It'd be a good place to pause and to take our, to take our next break. I'm going to pray for us once more and then we'll pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your tender steadfast love. God, we ask that we would be a people who are marked by this kind of love, that we would be thankful for the way that you pursued us in whatever ways we wandered, that it would humble us and help us pursue holiness before you and humility and forgiveness with one another. God, we thank you for, um, for Christ and how he became sin on our behalf. And then rose from the dead and now beckons us to come unto you that we might know your reconciling love. Uh, May that be precious to us. In the name of Jesus, amen.